listening to Ants Talk. Anthony was a former inspector with the New South Wales Police Force and currently works as a consultant. Anthony's training and skills read like an encyclopedia of knowledge. He has been a bodyguard for the Prime Minister and was in the public audit team of the Redfern Riots. Please welcome to the show a fascinating man, Anthony Macklin. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Anthony. Thank you. Great to be on the show. Likewise. I'm so happy to have you here. It's um, been a long time coming. <laughs> it has, indeed. But happy to be here finally. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. So, um, listen, I'm going to jump straight into the questions, if that's okay. Go for it. All right. So, um, you told me, at a young age, you were mercifully bullied at school. Tell us about that time. Look, um... I was never a particularly social kid, you know. I just liked my own things. I did my own stuff by myself. And then I went to school and, of course, um, I had a speech impediment when I first started in school and that was the beginning of it. Uh, As we all know, I think once you show any form of weakness to kids or uh, you're slightly different, you're easily bullied. So, look, it started from the day I hit kindergarten and it didn't stop really until uh, late in my high school years. But, you know, look, it, it really does play an interesting part in your life. It changes your perception of people and the way that you view people and how you interact with them. Um, I think, you know, look, it, it was one of those things where, and, and people experience this today, but when you get to be the subject of bullying constantly, you start going through every single interaction as with the filter of are they bullying me is what they're saying correct are they you know how are they how do they mean that was that a joke or was that pointing fun at me what was why were they doing that and so that changes the way you interact with your environment it changes how you feel about people um and people tend to distrust you the the way you operate in that in that areas you're constantly processing times different you're always a little bit suspicious so you don't come across as being as genuine as other people would be so i think that you're always on the that's right you're always looking for what angle is someone coming at you yeah um so look and that was really hard and to be honest for those years too i'm you know i grew up in a house where my mother was actually the um she was the she was a domestic violence offender, you know. She'd beat up my dad. She would yell and scream at myself and my brother. I remember her kicking my bedroom door in at 3 a.m. in the morning to come in and scream abuse at me to tell me how I'd uh, ruined her life somehow or other. Um, so, you know, you go to school and you're faced with this this challenge of bullies and then you go home and you just, you're bullied there as well. Now, all of that seems quite, it was horrific at the time there wasn't a good way to put it and I was in a really bad place at the, in my early years. But I will say it ultimately changed who I was. Um, and at the time, if you'd ever said to me that some good could come out of that, I would never have believed you. I would have ultimately thought what good could come out of this. But I can say that there has been nothing in my life since that time that has probably equaled the severity and the level of challenge that was involved in that. So throughout my professional life, that meant that when I'd go to any kind of situation where I was being abused, um, I was used to that. You know, that was a normal operating environment for me. I didn't find it so offensive. I wasn't um, on the defensive as much. I also found that ultimately when I've done some really 
the police force is really good at putting together some tough courses, some military grade courses, and you know they push you to your to the nth degree. But the funny thing is, they play psychological mind games with you a little bit, but none of that equals what my mother did to me and what kids did to me in school because they only had you know eight, twelve hours with me, or maybe they had me for a couple of weeks. But you knew it wasn't going to be for the rest of your life, and you knew there was a life outside of that that you could go back to. When you're a kid suffering bullying and domestic violence, you don't have that outlet, and it really gave me a resilience, something that I could step up from um, and go, you know what, it's not that bad. Nothing is as bad now as it was then. I suppose too with um, with the police force, it's almost like a, a role play situation rather than uh, you know, the reality of that. You know, it's it's just basically an instinct. For people that are in that situation, you know, when they're an abuser, they're bringing it on any time, any day. So you really do get used to just being able to deal with it, really. You do. And that doesn't mean that you don't have bad days. And there are some things that people say and words um, that affect you. And look, the psychology that I've learned in policing and just the observation of human nature is being so good for me and it allows me an opportunity to really help other people. Um, when you understand that some people use violence as a tool because they realise that other people just won't go to that level, um, it changes your perspective on people. Um, it's interesting to see people that are dominant, you know, offender types, and then when you don't back down when they're particularly violent to you, they're almost taken aback. They don't know what to do because they're used to standing over people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, it really does change the way you view people and you see things. And you actually, the police force gives you an opportunity to look at the world in a different perspective and to see people at their, their worst days and also to see how people interact with their community when they're trying to be deceptive and deceitful. And you start to be able to pick that just out of gut feeling. I'm trying to do that with my age right now. <laughs> um, Okay, your martial arts has been a huge part of your life, and it's also an escape. It's been an escape from bullying for you. Um, what would you say that would be right? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Look, like I said, I was I had a speech impediment. I also had asthma as a kid, and my mother, in particular, always said to me, "I could never be any good at anything physical." Um, and look, when you get told that all the time you have a belief that's just your internal monologue. Your internal monologue tells you all the time that you suck. You can't do this. Someone else does it better. Everybody else is better than you and really you shouldn't try. Um, but the interesting thing was at age 15, I got mugged on a train coming, you know, 3 p.m. in the afternoon and I'm catching this train from a seminar I went to in the city and I'm just sitting there and I'm watching people watch me get mugged. And I'm talking like a, I remember one guy, big builder guy, twice as big as the, kid, as the kid's rolling me, and he looks over his paper, watches for a minute, and then looks back. And he was less than three metres away, and he didn't do a thing. And, you know, if my confidence wasn't shattered before that, it certainly was after. And after that, I said to my parents, I said, look, I want to do something, you know, I want to do a martial art. And I've never done team sports before because, well, if you get bullied all the time, going and doing a team sport is just going to bring more of that on, or at least that's what you think. But when you do martial arts, the only person you really compete with is yourself. 
when you do martial arts, you don't, if you miss a class or training, no one cares that you didn't turn up. They're just glad you turn up the next time. No one says, well, you let the team down or you did anything else. And for someone that had low expectations and set the bar pretty low, you then start at wherever you expect to start. But then you start to learn new skills and do gradings and things, and that gives you a bit of self-confidence. It also instills a level of discipline when you say, well, I want to achieve a particular goal. And after time, you actually do achieve it. And it's the repercussions of that going, wow, I set myself a goal. I achieved it. Imagine what I could do if I set myself a bigger goal. And it's that attrition of constantly trying new things, doing new things. And that's what it was for me. For someone that being, I was told I couldn't do anything and I was physically useless and had no coordination to be able to step up and, you know, get close to black belts in different martial arts and do different things. In particular, as a young, a young man, um, it, was, it was extremely empowering for me. But I think it was also the personalities that were involved in martial arts. Um, a, good martial arts schools have people that are humble and that are looking to help you one-on-one. And they're people that want you to succeed as much as they want to succeed themselves. Um, I particularly remember, and I didn't have the insight into what my own inner monologue was saying until I had, a, I had an instructor in Kung Fu and he was a sports psychologist. So he used to give us these seminars every second or third week after training on psychology. And he identified for me that everything that I did in my mind, I told myself I was no good at. And he actually showed me the way to get around that. And it took a lot of time, but it made my perspective of the world a different, a totally different perspective. And as now I realise that for most people, perspective is reality. Yeah. I mean, I was bullied as a child too. And I mean, it's those people that, you know, took that time to give me that extra five minutes of attention that, you know, they literally changed my life. I mean, from teachers to other people, you know, other children's parents, um, they were really the ones that, you know, basically made me the person I am today because I was deathly shy. Um, yes. And, you know, from being deathly shy, I was then picked on and bullied and stuff like that. And, you know, thank God for those people because I don't know where I would have ended up really. I mean, it's, you know, sort of sad to think about where I would have ended up without them. I think that's right, you know, and look, certain environments tend to portray a particular culture and, you know, some team environments are fantastic for kids, but some of them can be really quite toxic and you don't know what you're going to get until you get there and get in it. Um, And that can be an influence of other parents for children, that can be an influence of poor coaching, leadership or just, you know, other kids that are being raised in a bad environment. Yeah. Whereas with martial arts, you are, it's an individual-based activity but done with other people. And you can almost choose who you train with, who you don't train with, you know. Um, and those people that really don't share the same culture and values of the club usually don't last very long. That's right. Um, you are also a, speci- a specialist sexual assault investigator. What did this work involved and were you investigating not only the person that had committed a crime, but also the that even the crime was committed itself. So as in the victim was also being truthful. Yeah, look, I think it's one of those things. People have a particular view of investigations based on what they see on TV. And look, I would love to be able to solve 
any kind of investigation in an hour or just a day like uh, they used to do on your blue healers on your svu and you know um crime scene investigations all the rest of that kind of stuff huge but, fan though <laughs> actually my partner hates me watching crime shows with it because i'm constantly saying no no that's not right that's not how you do it i get banished into the other room um but the funny thing is you are constantly a good investigation looks for what we call inculpatory and exculpatory evidence which basically says we're looking to prove you know once we have a suspect if we're looking for evidence of whether they did do it or whether they didn't do it and both need to be provided to the court. Now, it seemed counterintuitive that you wouldn't want to do that, but the last thing you want to do is put any person before a magistrate who's innocent. And I can say in all my time in 18 years, I've never put anyone before a magistrate who I didn't fully believe had taken part in the crime they were charged with. And look, that's the way legal systems have to work. You have to have fairness and openness in the investigation. And from my experience, I see people saying, oh, people were unfairly tried and this and that, and there was the police were against them. And I, I think there's a couple of considerations that the general public need to take in here. And that is, number one, first of all, police don't get paid by the arrest or the charge, okay? We can... There are, in fact, I've come across a few police that were really dodgy and were looking not to do any work. Um, and they're the antithesis of the worst cops you'll see. But they're the worst because they're lazy and they won't do anything and they won't charge people because that requires a lot more work. But ultimately, before you can charge someone, you need to meet certain proofs. Before someone goes to jail, they need to be before a court, before the jury of their peers, and they get the jury hears all the evidence. In fact, the jury come to think of it doesn't actually hear all the evidence because there is some evidence that gets removed because of the bias that the jury might imply to it against the offender. So most juries won't hear all the evidence at all. So if someone gets convicted, they've actually been convicted on evidence that was considered to be fair and unbiased towards them by a jury of people. And sometimes that evidence that gets excluded as cops is really frustrating, but it's something that is really important to do. Um, when it comes to sexual offences, one of the biggest issues is that your victim and your offender are usually alone. There's virtually no witness to it. And in that regard, you can almost always prove that sexual activity took place. But trying to prove where the, where the consent was is very, very difficult. Um, and, look, there are some skillful barristers, QCs and solicitors out there that come up with some fanciful stories that I've seen uh, adopted by juries and taken on board. And to me, I, I think it's laughable, but, you know, these guys come up with these things. And, and this is where it's very difficult for any victim, I think, to come forward and feel like they're going to get a just system when they feel like they're not going to be believed. Um, but having said that, there is also the other side of it. I can think of at least one occasion I had a victim that made up an entire scenario and it was basically around she didn't she was an, over here on a particular visa and thought if she made up a story of sexual assault that she would be able to stay longer. 
Um, and look, that was a week's worth of investigation by a whole team of detectives. And, you know, we trying to find people and looking at different people that may have been in the area at the time, only to find out that the story didn't come together. Wow. And wow. we asked her and asked her again, and she didn't come forward with the information until I think of the second or third interview after we'd, um, we'd originally founded that theory that she was telling us lies. And yet the problem is, again, as a public entity, the police force will generally not charge a, a victim of sexual assault or an alleged victim of sexual assault who turns out to be, you know, deceitful with lying to us because the message that can send to other victims of sexual offences is that I won't be believed and I can't come forward. And that's the last thing we want. We want people to understand that they can come forward, they can talk to us and they will be believed. Um, but I can understand how victims would feel like that. I think that that's, um, that's a point too, is that a lot of people these days are quite sort of scared of having CCTV everywhere and cameras following us and watching us and stuff like that. But at the same token, it's something that's so important because it, it's, it's, it's physical, actual evidence. Mm. So if anything yeah. ever happened to us, you know, that that's there to sort of stand up in court and, you know, show, basically, you know, put a person in jail that's committed a crime against you. So, I mean, I'm all for it. You know, if you've got nothing to hide, I don't think it's a problem, you know? I think, I think that's, that's a very, very good concept. I think ultimately what we do, and particularly speaking of the sexual investigations is we're always trying to corroborate all the evidence from the victim right up to and straight after the point that we can't prove. So we're looking for, you know, if that victim said, I went to the club, I spoke to this person, I caught a taxi from here, I got out there, I was with this person and that person, you get a pretty good feel early on when you go and, first of all, after you've dealt with a number of victims, you get a gut feeling, you know, you start to see what, there's almost like a playbook of people that have modus operandi of offenders. And so when you see victims talking about that, you can see that it makes sense. But you go back and look, sometimes for an investigator, it's not the cool job that people think it is as a detective when you're sitting there for days on end watching CCTV, just looking for someone getting into a taxi. Who'd they get in with? What time did they get in? Where did that go? You know, there's a lot of intricate detail you're trying to track down to get the evidence that you need. Um, but look, CCTV is there for a reason. And it's as much a protection um, for the rest of us as it is for those that feel like it's an invasion of privacy. And I understand how people may consider that to be an invasion of privacy, but ultimately I'm with you. If you don't do anything wrong, then you have nothing to fear. We don't have the resources to keep track of everybody, nor would we want to. Um, and frankly, I think there's a lot of fear mongering done by certain people in the, in the community that do it for their own ends. Um, work, a, work a day in the shoes of the cops and you'll understand a whole new realm of the community you live in and something you never noticed before. Oh, I can imagine. I can definitely imagine that. This is Ants Talk. Um, now tell us, how do you feel about women's self-defence programs? Ah, yeah, it's a particular bugbear of mine. I... Um, geez, you're pushing my buttons here today, Anthony. It's uh, my job. Mate, look, <laughs> it is, and you're doing it well. <laughs> look, it's one of those things. I, I, I guess 
I've done over 10 martial arts and I've been a, a specialist investigator for women's sexual, well, sexual assault across the state, both children and adults and child exploitation. And, you know, look, I've investigated so many sexual offences. And the interesting thing is, being in different martial arts schools, I've seen them do the conventional women's self-defence. And I think to myself, what are you really trying to achieve by this? Are you actually trying to arm women to be able to defend themselves? Or is it just a sales pitch? And in reality, most of the time it's just a sales pitch. First of all, let's consider why it's a sales pitch or why it's not real. I mean, everything you see on TV, every martial arts scene you've ever seen on TV is in fact choreographed. It's no different to a dance. They practice it. They try and get moves and timing done. It's in perfect sequence. But that's what people think martial arts is. When you put that into practice on the street, it's never that pretty. It never goes the way you expect it to. Now, take into account that if you need to be good at something, you need to do that repetition, you know, 3,000 times. Then they're suggesting to you, you can learn a practical skill that you can apply, a physical application of a skill in two hours, maybe, maybe three, even a whole day. By the end of that week, I ask you a month later, how much of that have you remembered? And so then implement this into a scenario, which is, it's only, and this is part of my other bugbear with it is, this is only good if it's someone you don't know. All right, so they train you for the proverbial, oh, you walk down a dark alleyway and someone grabbed you from behind. Well, first of all, I don't know too many women that walk down a dark alleyway. And tell you as a cop working the beat by myself, I try not to walk down dark alleyways unless there was a good reason, you know. And if I had, you know, men out there, you shouldn't be walking down dark alleyways either because who knows what could happen to anyone, you know. That's how crime works. But... If you walk down the dark alleyway and someone grabs you from behind, there's a number of things that take place. And the very first of those is shock. And I guess the best way to describe that is if you've ever been in a good car accident where you've been hit from behind or the side and you just didn't see it happening, there's a three to five second window when you really don't know what's happened to you and you're questioning it yourself and you're like, okay, hang on, I have been in a car accident. Did that really just happen? Am I okay? What's, what's happening? So you're already behind the eight ball. And then you introduce something called Hicks Law. And Hicks Law basically says the more options you have available to you to assess, the longer the time it takes to process those and choose them. So you've just gone and learned 10, 12, 20 different techniques at a women's self-defence seminar and you walk out, you get grabbed from behind, you're already five seconds behind the eight ball, and then you've got to decide which of those techniques works. But hang on, did he grab me with the left hand or the right hand? And is that around my waist or is it around my chest? And, and what about if I stomp his feet? The stomping feet thing's never going to work because you're not stationary, because no one complies for you in the street as they do in the seminar. So by the time that any of this comes to fruition and you can actually do something about it, you've usually already lost that amount of time. You've lost every advantage you had and you've been put hard into the ground, into the wall, and you're already being assaulted. And the problem with that is not only is that a horrendous thing to happen, but it makes people, especially victims, feel like they didn't do it right and they're somehow to blame and they're at fault. So none of that really works for them. 
Now, if people actually understood how sexual offenders work, they would realise that that's probably only 10 to 20% of sexual offenders ha offences happen in that way. In fact, 80% is usually done by someone you've met, known, seen before, um, have some interaction with. And in my regard, for my mind, that's where you need to work. That's how you need to understand what to do if you're being approached by those people. You need to understand what the warning signs are so you can extract yourself from that situation before it happens. Waiting till it's too late and someone puts their hands on you, it's, it's never going to work. But unfortunately, we battle two things here, and that is that people consider women's self-defence to be a physical concept and not a strategic concept. And second of all, and quite surprising to me and perhaps to your listeners, people don't actually want to admit it. We have one in four women in New South Wales in Australia will be sexually assaulted. We know that. But no one wants to talk about it. Everybody's afraid of being afraid. For me, I mean, I work in risk management and, you know, emergency management as a consultant. What I want to know is what is the risk? How do I mitigate that? And having that knowledge and a plan, then I can go out in the community and feel confident or I can work with this organisation, I'm safe and I'm happy because I know what to do when it goes bad. But in general society, people don't want to admit that this is even a possibility and that makes you more vulnerable than if you weren't. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's so many variances. There's, you know, height variances, weight variances, you know, size of knives, you know, what if they don't have a knife, they've got a gun, what, you know. There are so many variances and I don't think that's that right. one course can teach you everything. Um, I think it's, it's about becoming aware, especially, I mean, especially with, lately with all these uh, rapes and murders of, you know, the women in Australia, women have sort of come out, especially there was a feed on Facebook where they were talking about things that women do every day, which men don't, and, you know, such as holding their keys in their hands, you know, walking different mm. the streets. I think that that's a really good thing to be out there because I think that the more aware we are of our surroundings, the better. Um, I see so many people walking down the street at night with headphones on and I've yeah. one, that's one of the first things I take out of my ears once it's getting dark because I want to hear if someone's coming towards me, you know? That's right. Yeah, and I think that yeah. that's the thing is becoming a lot more aware of the surroundings and just, you know, the possibilities of what's, you know, what could happen. And, and look, I think you make a fabulous point there I just want to touch on um, around body language and the, the way you act. So there was actually a study in... Uh, in New York in the early 80s, and it was done by a couple of criminologists and psychologists, and they got convicted rapists, murderers, armed robbers to watch some CCTV cameras of people coming out of a railway station. And the interesting thing is they said to them, who would you victimise? And they all picked the same people, not necessarily the smallest, not necessarily all women. Um, they, in fact, picked one particular individual male that was tall and you know, large build, but he had his head down. He wasn't looking up, he was walking slow, he was distracted or trying to avoid contact with anyone. And he was the one that you would you know, generally look at and think, wow, he's a big guy, you wouldn't go for that. But the study indicates that it's the body language that offenders pick up on. So if you walk with, with purpose, head up, looking around, meeting the gaze of other people, not staring them down necessarily, but just keeping your wits about you and looking around, you're less likely to be targeted by an offender than you are if you're just, you know, walking with your headphones in or 
you know, walking slowly and trying to be meek and mild and not offend anyone. I find that a lot with women. Actually. I'm, I'm very um, perceptive of what's around me and I, I see a lot of women that walk trying to almost avoid the, the you know, the looks of men. And it's, mm. I understand that, you know, why they're doing it because they're trying to avoid that sort of interaction as such that may be unwelcome later on. But at the same time, I think that it's important to look up and look at them in the eyes because a, you're going to show them that you're not this sort of shy, intimidated person. Absolutely. But the yeah. second thing is you're actually going to get a good look at their face in case anything does happen. And you know what? That is a fabulous point. I think people tend to think that if I dress, you know, there's that concept of, oh, you know, she's wearing a short skirt or something that, you know what, that's inviting sexual assault. In fact, it's the other way around. That woman who wears that has the confidence and she's out strutting her stuff and she's like, I am looking fabulous and I'm confident and I can do what I want. I'm my own individual. That's not the person you want to victimise. Sexual assault is about power. The person that wears the skivvy with the skirt to the, to the ankles, for whatever reason, probably looks more meek and mild and like they're not as confident. And they, they behave in that way and they're the people that are more likely to be victimised because they're not going to put up any fight. They're, they're considered to be an easier victim. Um, you mentioned part of the interview that you thought that bullying, well, the bullying you had endured made you a better person. Can you explain that a bit better? Yeah, look, um, ultimately it's just resilience. If you are able to, well, it's resilience and a self-assessment. You can, I'm happy for constructive criticism. And there was a time in my life where I took every criticism as bullying but I had to learn that that wasn't the case. Um, but it also meant that I was forced to look at myself and go, well, is what they've said true? And what do I need to do about it? Or is that their own problem? But when it comes to resilience, I think, like I said, it's about knowing that nothing that they, that I get put through now is ever going to be as difficult as it was before. Um, you know, no one can, I'm a, stronger, more confident, happier individual than I was then. And I won't let people bully me or take notice of what they say, but it's taken a long time to get there. Um, I wouldn't have thought that was the case. And it's not something I'd suggest people go and do, you know, you don't, no one wants to be bullied and they shouldn't be. But in my particular case, it made me resilient. It made me able to get out there and push the boundaries a bit because I wasn't going to let them hold me back eventually. And it made me a better cop. You know, it made me understand that, you know what, I understand what a victim feels like. And I had this passion for injustice. Um, when you're younger, you don't realize that you can just get out of the situation, just walk away. Yeah. Whereas when you're older, you realize, well, I don't have to stick around this person or this situation. I'm getting out of here. Whereas a kid, That's right. especially because a lot of it happens at school, you can't just walk away. You're going to still see those people daily, you know? And they're your peer group as well. You know, when you get older, you have the ability to be able to walk, you know, find a different peer group. Um, and that's, that's a lot of the problem for kids today, I think, is that, like you said, they're locked into a particular segment of society they have to see every day. Yeah. Um, can you let us in on some body language and communication tips to gain compliance or detect deception? <laughs> yeah, look, as, as I said, being in the police force, you deal with, well, you have an old saying, and that is, how do you know when a criminal is lying to you? Their lips are moving. Um, when, you, when you talk to people, 
I mean, originally you start investigating things and you think people tell you the truth. And then when you realize that they lied to your face, you start understanding that it's lying is a particular habit of many people. Um, and a lot of people do it almost sometimes just so they don't hurt the feelings of others. So you become quite good as a police officer in detecting lying, but it's how you articulate it. And I think one of the key things to learn is, first of all, the longer you know someone, the more easy it is to detect when they're lying because you have a feeling for them and you understand how they operate day to day. But look, one of, the, one of my classics is a liar would generally look you in the eye. In society today, we think that, you know, if you're lying, you can't look you in the eye. They won't look you in the eye, sorry. But liars know that too, and they know they'll be considered deceptive if they don't look you in the eye, so they look you in the eye hard. The only problem is when you're not lying, you don't feel like you have to look people in the eye because you've got nothing to hide. So you don't look people in the eye. You just do what you normally do. You maintain eye contact on and off, but you don't stare at them. Um, I think the other one too is I look for details. If you tell me something and you go into too much detail, random detail I didn't ask for and didn't need for the story, that's a pretty good indicator. Um, Because, look, some people will tell you their whole life story just when you ask them how their day is. That's a little bit different. But if you know that person, you know that's how they operate, that's fine. But most people aren't going to tell you that they caught the 423 bus and they sat next to a person that, you know, had a questionable smell before they tripped off the bottom step of the bus getting through just to tell you that, hey, you know what? I got takeaway for dinner, you know? So you look for that additional detail. Um, Also, when you're looking at people's eyes, the creative mind requires people to look up and to their right. When they're accessing their creative mind, if you see someone look up and to their right, just like you did there, and it can just be for a fleeting second, but if you can pick up on those things, you will start to have an indicator. And it should be, should be known that when you're looking for indicators, they work in blocks. So one thing may not necessarily be it, but when you start to see two, three or four things happening at once, you know they're definitely, definitely lying to you. Look, as a dad, it's been great for me because I can call out my teenage daughter most of the time, um, <laughs> despite what she tries to tell me. Oh, that'd be an incredible skill to have, I think, for most parents. <laughs> Um, what are, also, what would you say isn't on the brochure when you join the police force and what should be there? Look, the, um, the police force is a dynamic institution. You know, what you're required to do is beyond the scope of any brochure. Um, but I think what they don't tell you is what happens outside of work. And that, you know, for example, I lost most of my friendship circle when I joined the cops and that was basically because you're doing shift work. You can't catch up with people. The people that you do talk to, they don't actually want to know the realities of the world you work in because that makes them scared. Um, Their perspective totally changes and the police force has its own culture. So you become more like a police officer and less like the normal citizens you used to be. Um, You know, it's things like you don't send your kids to public school if you can help it because you don't want the local crooks kids knowing that your kids' parents are cops because those kids are going to bully your kids and you don't want them to have that. Um, 
you, I mean, no one, unless you've done shift work, you can't understand how much time that takes out of your life, um, how that changes your physio- physiological self, um, your psychology. I mean, I am horrible to work with, live with after I've had two night shifts. And, you know, a night shift usually goes for, you know, 12 hours, but let's face it, that's 13 to 14. And by the time you get home, and then for the next two days, you're just not the normal self. You're not your normal person. I have to admit, leaving the police force and not doing shift work has been fantastic for my body yeah. um, and for my mental health. So they're just, they're just some of the things that we deal with. But you could write a book on what's not on the brochure. Yeah. I think that's a thing a lot of people don't realise. And, you know, I mean, my nephew has become a policeman and, you know, even with him being so new to the force and having a chat to him, it's incredible to hear his point of view about how his life has changed since. And it's, mm. it's even the people around you, you know, the, the person, you know, your, your best friend that doesn't include something on their tax thinks, I can't be friends with <laughs> anymore. I'm going to end up in jail. And I think a lot of the time it's paranoia that, you know, I mean, I think that majority of people are just living their lives and, you know, trying to be as honest as they can and sure if they can get a free meal, they're going to get a free meal, you know, and that's something that they got, you know, they're going to be thrown in jail for. Um, But I've noticed with him that by joining the police force, there is a real family feel to his workmates. Um, And that, I mean, that's reassuring for me because I see that there are people out there looking out for him and they're going to try and keep him as safe as they possibly can, you know, because we all worry about him. Absolutely. And, and look, the thing that no one understands and um, my partner now took a while to realize, and she's like, I don't understand why you get so upset about other police being hurt. And you know, they just, she said, look, it's sad, but I don't understand why it makes you angry and really, really affects you. And I said, because what you don't realise is that guy that wears a uniform, he doesn't have to know me, but he's my family. Yeah. Because you get in situations and that guy doesn't care what your name is. He doesn't care who you are when you're at home. He just knows that you do the same job as he does, you understand things and you're doing things for the right reason and he's got to look after you and he will put his life on the line for you as you will for him just to make sure that you're okay. And for no other reason. It's not about the money that they're there. It's not about, you know being a hero or anything it's just about doing the right thing and looking after your mates um and it's something that really doesn't seem to exist in a lot of other occupations yeah i think it's a you know that's the thing it's a very it's a unique job because you you really are in some situations offering your life over to the safety of the community and i think that a lot of people don't realize that um and people need to sort of stop looking at police as an enemy it's they're actually mm. to protect us, to serve us, to, you know, they, there's a lot of good out there and not every single policeman is a, you know, dodgy, got dodgy guy. Yeah. Because a lot of people I, don't I think that. You're, and you're right. And look, people have that opinion. But what I say to people is this, by the time you see any footage, and, and look, the, the curse of today's day and age is everybody's got a camera on them all the time. But by the time that they've got their phone out and started recording. They only see the police retaliating. And I say to you, oftentimes people didn't see, I mean, you cut any piece of vision to a certain time length and you can make it look good or bad. But if you saw the entirety of that, if you knew that that guy they were dealing with was a serial drug offender or 
child sex offender or arm robber and they'd spoken to him and he spat on them, he's tried to hit them or whatever else. And all you get on video is, you know, the cops telling a guy he's under arrest and upending him and putting him in handcuffs. You know, you can put a lot of spin on a lot of different things because especially for media outlets too, you've got to remember they're trying to sell a particular product and saying the police did something right doesn't really sell newspapers. It doesn't sell clicks on their website. But when you say the cops did something completely wrong and are heavy-handed and they did it, did it all under falsehood, that gets people interested. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to achieve. I think that's the thing too. I mean, you know, every situation is unique and we don't know how we'd handle that situation and we might end up being heavy-handed if we were trying to get out of it or trying to arrest the person. So, you know, we're not really one to judge until we do see the whole story and the whole vision ourselves. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, very open-minded, Anthony. Oh, you know, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Anthony, I thank you so much for chatting to us. Um, I could just talk to you all day. I find it absolutely fascinating, your, your incredible career. Um, thank you. And if people want to sort of spe- uh, read about your career or get in contact, what's the best way for them to do that? Look, if um, probably jump onto the website, so that's rampart, R-A-M-P-A-R-T dot com dot A-U. They uh, can see my consulting services there. We write articles. Um, they can also contact us. I come out and speak to all different community groups and organisations. We do things on leadership and just, you know, knowing self, psychology, deception, investigations, uh, you name it. I've, I've learned a hell of a lot in over two decades of policing and law enforcement. So look, just have a look at the website and give us a call or there and send us an email and we'll happily get back to you anytime. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony. Have a great day. You too. Tune in each week for Ant's Talk to learn about real life stories, celebrities and everything in between.